Tonight I'm going to continue <coughs> with this series that uh, somehow began so many weeks ago now. I started uh, by giving an evening uh, talking about mindfulness. And that led to an evening about mindfulness practice. The idea that mindfulness practice is different and broader than just what mindfulness is as a mental factor. And that led to a discussion about concentration, since the partner of mindfulness is concentration. And uh, the Buddhist path uh, very much involves the partnership of those two. And but that led to a second night talking about concentration because you couldn't do it just in one night. And, uh, and then uh, there was a night talking about insight because the fruit of mindfulness and concentration is insight, the Insight Meditation Center. And uh, I, that was last week. And the and insight, the fruit of insight, is liberation. So it kind of ends up kind of like a series building on itself as we went along. And this evening's talk will then be about liberation. And, um, or freedom. The, um, um, you know, uh, Buddhism is not unique in trying to address some of the fundamental existential issues that human beings face. Um, and they, in some ways all religions try to address them. And um, you don't have to investigate life or be sensitive to life very much to realize that human beings, um, if they're going to be awake or pay attention to what's going on and get through uh, life, and, that sooner or later most people will have to address the issues of the having to do with the fragility of life. That life is actually quite fragile. Our own life is quite fragile. It's amazingly so. Um, it, um, biologically, it's fragile. Uh, you know, we get sickness, old age, and death will come soon enough to everybody. And um, the, um, but also um, our our um, our identity psychological identity of who we think we are is something that's shifting all the time. And uh, oftentimes who we are shifts faster than our identity. So we might think we are something and then uh, things change. And um, so um, how do we keep up? <clears throat> and then there's the fra fragility of our social life that can change very quickly overnight in a minute, in a second. Uh, I've known people whose lives, something happened very dramatically, very suddenly, just in, over in a few minutes, or a minute, or a second, and they knew their life was going to be changed forever from that moment. better? I think it was kind of crinkling, wasn't it? So, um, <clears throat> so, 
So Buddhism is uh, like you know other religions and ways of life uh, are, is trying to address some of the fundamental issues that we have. And there's many ways of looking at these issues and understanding them, and also many ways of understanding the solutions, the so-called solutions to them. There are many different attempts, some very creative in the history of uh, humankind. So amazingly creative ways of uh, trying to solve the issues of suffering. One of the creative ones has been the attempts to um, put it off, the solution to suffering or solution to some of the problems of being a human being, um, until the next life. And after life, after we die, somehow there's, you know, there'll be a heaven we'll go to or something. And, and it's been pointed out that uh, uh, people who, for whom there's um, intolerable oppression and suffering in this lifetime, and they see no hope of any change in this lifetime here, will sometimes come up with uh, religious solutions where the solution to their life is in the future life, in next life, in heaven or something. Because they don't see anything's possible here and they need some kind of hope, something to live for. And so they put all their kind of hope into the future. Um, there's also so, uh, you know, the solutions that people have where they try to, rather, what they try to do is to kind of fix the world. If only the world could be a better place, then it'll take care of everything. And so there's all kinds of approaches people take. There's one very wealthy um, uh, businessman here in Silicon Valley who, uh, the rumor goes, is he's afraid of death. And he's putting some of his money, a lot of his money, into um, long life research. <laughs> That's one solution, you know. And, you know, don't deal with death by not dying. So that's, that's hopeful. So the, the, um, the story, one of the stories that Buddhists like to tell themselves, um, one of the ways of understanding religions is religions are constellated around stories and uh, narratives. And so Buddhism has its story, stories that it tells. And so much of Buddhism kind of orients itself or comes out of the story that uh, Buddhists tell each other. So one of the core stories of Buddhism is a story of the Buddha, uh, or Siddhartha before he was Buddha, living as a prince in a palace. Actually, he is supposed to have three palaces for each of the three seasons in northern India. And he could uh, travel uh, to different palaces, so he could just have the ideal season all year round. In the hot season, he went higher up in the Himalayas. In the you know, cold season, he came down again. And um, his father uh, wanted to protect him from the sufferings of life because the father was afraid that if his son saw what life was really like, the suffering of life, that uh, Siddhartha would leave the family business and uh, would not come become a king or, and would go off and become a, do something else with his life. So he stayed quite protected. And... Um, some people who grow grown up in the suburbs in the United States can also live very protected lives. Uh, I was one of those. Um, in the suburbs where I grew up in Los Angeles, I never encountered death. And it wasn't until I was 11 and I went to Nepal with my parents that I saw a first dead person because they were carrying the dead person on the street to the crematorium. He was carrying it on a stretcher. And um, I'd never seen a dead person before. 
came back to Los Angeles and didn't see a dead person until I was um, freshman in college. And then um, I only saw it because my art teacher took us to the anatomy lab in order to draw a, a, a cadaver. So, you know, I was living in my own kind of protected environment from certain aspects of life. So the Buddha lived this protected life. And at some point, in his, uh, he decided to jump the wall. And he left the palace with his attendant on a chariot, his charioteer. And they went through town. And the first thing they encountered was uh, someone who was old. And the Buddha, Siddhartha, asked the charioteer, what is that? What is that? I was in Palo Alto many years ago and I was walking down the side street from, I guess it's University Avenue, and, and um, there was this amazing building that seemed kind of out of context for what I'd ever seen, ever seen before in Palo Alto. It looked kind of, a little bit like a palace, a little kind of glitzy, something. What is that? It was a um, plastic surgery center. <laughs> I'd never seen that. So the Buddha saw old age. You know, so, so I guess he saw an old person. And so he said, what's that? And, um, and the charioteer said, that's an old person. And it's the nature of everybody to get old. So that's kind of a shock for the Buddha. Me too. So then they go out another day. And this next day they encounter a sick person. And the same kind of exchange happens, and the charioteer says, that's a sick person. It's a nature of everyone to get sick sooner or later. Another shock for Siddhartha. And then uh, he goes out third time, and he sees a corpse. And what is that? And uh, the charioteer said, that's a corpse. It's a nature of everyone to die. That's the third shock of the Buddha somehow being shocked by, by, by reality. He hadn't watched enough television, so he didn't know about death. And um, so then uh, uh, he goes out a fourth time. And the fourth time, he sees a renunciant. If you go to India to this day, you walk around and you'll find uh, many different renunciants of different stripes, different kinds. But it's a fairly common um, part of the landscape in India to see renunciants. And um, maybe not so uncommon in some places in our culture here, we see people also renunciants. In fact, around the corner from where I live, there's a house with nuns, Catholic nuns. And so every once in a while you see these nuns with their vestments walking down my street. They say hello, it's very nice. And it's very nice to see them. I'm inspired by them. They have a very nice manner about them. They say nice, hello very nicely. It's really great. I love having these people on my, on my block. But in India, so the Buddha saw a renunciant. And um, he said, what is that? And the charioteer said, oh, that's a renunciant. That's someone who has left the household life and is seeking um, truth, speaking spiritual truth, speaking, seeking liberation. And the way the story is often told, there was something about the demeanor of this renunciant that um, grabbed the Buddha. Somehow he had an aura of peace and presence 
composure that he had never seen before. And this perhaps was the fourth shock. But the first three shocks are called, uh, these four, the four are called the four heavenly messengers. And one part of the legend, the lore of Buddhism, is that um, some kind of gods in the heavenly realm saw, you know, this was not a good scene to have this young man protected. So they manifested these three images, so, you know, at just the right time. So these heavenly messengers, divine messengers. It's kind of a nice story because all of us, sooner or later, will encounter something like sickness, old age, and death. We'll encounter some form of the fragility of life in all its different forms. And we can be horrified by it, distressed by it, or we could see it as a heavenly messengers, divine messengers, as messengers that come to us with certain kind of offering, certain kind of lesson. And you don't want to say that to someone right at the moment of crisis, perhaps, in their life. Oh, that's a messenger. <laughs> but uh, at other times, it might actually be, you know, something very profoundly maturing and, and significant to actually orient ourselves to see these situations not, uh, as the opportunities they offer, as the lessons they offer, or as a wake-up call of a certain kind, to wake up to this life of ours and not be complacent. And um, be, being willing to step out of the palace. That's what the Buddha did. He, and then he left the palace. He, he saw the, 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 the renunciant and then decided himself to go off and become a renunciant and seek uh, kind of, some kind of solution to the suffering that he encountered in the world. So the story we Buddhists, Buddhists, Buddhists tell each other um, is a challenge also to each of us to, to consider what are the palaces we live in where we are protected from this life, that, you know, the existential life, and protected from our life. And um, I think every, every human being you know, some, often is protected from something, but uh, it's often pointed out that in our amazingly affluent culture, where not everyone is affluent, the, the, um, it's very easy to be blinded to what's going on beyond the walls of our communities and to be surprised by it, to encounter it or to know about it but not feel like it's anything to do with me. So to live in our own palaces, protected palaces, we don't have to encounter and deal with what's happening um, in this world, to really see this world as it actually is. So is there a palace that you're living in? There's some way that something, some blinders that we're living in. We're not really facing your life, addressing your life as it really is. Is some, for some people, their palace is work. And they hide and work. They just, they just do and do and do. Hide and work. Work, work, work. Other people will hide in entertainment. Some people hide in relationships. Just, if I just get the right relationship, have a relationship, I always get busy and talking. I don't have to really see what's going on. So in telling the story, Buddhists are kind of also challenging themselves what, is it, what are the palace you're living in that would be helpful to step out of? And the, the odd thing about that, or the very strange thing about that, is the palace is a comfortable place. So what is the comfortable place you're in that you're hiding in? What's the comfortable place that you'd be willing to step out of? Why in the world would you? Why would you leave a comfortable place? That's part of the question in the story. Why would you leave some place that's comfortable? Isn't Buddhism about being peaceful? 
peaceful, accepting, at ease with how things are. Everything's perfect. My 52-inch television and me, we're just perfect. Yes, I can accept this. <laughs> but to step out of our comfort is that required sometimes. And I would suggest that the story that Buddhists tell each other is pointing to the fact that yes, it is necessary. If what you want is freedom and liberation, at some point we have to step out of a place where we're comfortable. So the Buddha did that. He left the palace and went into the renunciant life. And one of the uh, striking things for me about the Buddha going off into renunciant life, he went into a life, uh, a life of practice, of exploration, of discovery, that he had no map, he had no guidebook. He had no assurance that he would find his way in it. He was basically on his own. <clears throat> so he went off into the renunciate life. <clears throat> and then uh, after many years of searching and practicing, eventually uh, he discovered freedom. And the, uh, there's a variety of words that are more or less synonyms for freedom in Buddhism. The um, um, one word is uh, bodhi, which means awakening. Another is um, um, nibbana and nirvana, which basically probably translates into English as pretty well as the as release. Nirvana has, it almost just means the same thing as release, to be released. And another is uh, peace. For awakening, it's really necessary to understand something deeply. For release, it's necessary to let go of something. And for um, what was the last one? I said peace. Um, no, no. For awakening, it's necessary to arouse something, for something to be, be awakened. For release, something has to be let go of, and for peace, something has to be understood. So these are kind of the three tasks of practice: to develop, to cultivate ourselves, so something can be, be awakened. Something has to be let go of, be released and something has to be understood or seen very deeply. And for this, uh, these projects, Buddhism has these, a whole slew of practices. And it's, I think it's very helpful to think of Buddhism having a large repertoire of practices. It's like having a big, big uh, chest of medicine. Because the, the illnesses that are being addressed in human beings are so varied that to have just simply one pill you know, just, just take the aspirin. Is not really going to do it for all the different kind of illnesses people have. So Buddhism actually has a whole chest full of different kinds of spiritual practices that you can do. And so it takes some wisdom to know which of these practices to pick up and what to practice, what, what to do. And they might be uh, uh, diametrically different from each other, what people do. Um, some people might practice... Um, um, sitting and meditating um, on beauty. 
the beauty of life. And other people, maybe they're better off sitting at the cemetery and meditating on death. Very different approaches, but different medicine depending on what the illness is, depending on what needs to be addressed and looked at and worked with. But at the core of this, uh, of all the different practices, are the, two, are the three practices, I would say, that have come over and over again in the, in the tradition. One is the practice of mindfulness. The other is the practice of concentration. And the third, which I haven't talked about in this series, is the practice of loving-kindness. Th- those three are kind of like at the very heart. And some people will protest and say, well, there are other things that should be included in the heart as well, like ethics. And then you keep filling it in. But so there's these practices we, we engage in. And the ultimate goal in Buddhism is to look for a solution to the existential issue of life that, prov- that provides a lasting peace and a lasting happiness. And that's the particular focus of Buddhism. Is The particular focus of, Bud- of Buddhism is that the, the, uh, the gaze, the search for freedom, is searched for inside rather than outside. Rather than trying to, to arrange the world differently, or rather than looking for a heavenly realm that we can go to, rather than amassing all the wealth that we can, rather than amassing acquisitions, amassing status, the arrow, the, or the, the direction that we look for peace and freedom that's lasting and is within ourselves. And if we look within ourselves, then what we're looking for is release and not relief. And this is a very important distinction. In the search for freedom, we're looking for release and not relief. Relief means a temporary appeasement, a temporary vacation from our difficulties, from our struggles, from suffering. Release implies a kind of a transformation that moves us away from or out of it once and for all. We actually something gets released once and for all. And if we're looking within, what we're looking for in release is a tendency to be in bondage, a tendency to be somehow enslaved, to be released from that enslavement, that bondage, is the, the you know the goal of Buddhism. So then we have to appreciate. How are we enslaved? How are we in bondage? And in the time of the Buddha, he talked uh, frequently about using the language of bondage and enslavement, which when I first encountered Buddhism and heard that kind of language, was kind of jarring to me. It just kind of didn't compute at first for me. But I think that it, partly it's a language that uh, is kind of putting you, put, uh, pushing your face up against trying to understand the ways in which our uh, attachments and clinging, compulsion, operates in our life. To really face it and see it honestly. How free are we actually, is the question. Are you really free? And then that, that points in the direction of making a distinct, distinct, distinction between the American idea of freedom, or kind of popular idea of freedom, and maybe what's meant in Buddhism by freedom. 
One idea of freedom is um, the freedom to, the freedom to do things. So, for example, the freedom, uh, the freedom to, ex- freedom of expression is important American right, right? The freedom uh, of um, to bear arms, the freedom to vote, the freedom to shop. You know, there's this, you know, the freedom to own property. These freedoms, too, do things. And they're uh, enshrined in American culture. It's very, being very, very important, this freedom, too. And uh, there's a lot of wisdom to it. However, it might, if, we, if we're free to do something, it, it might not reveal to us the inner forces that are compelling us to act that way. So take, for example, the freedom to shop. It'd be great, right? Shop to your drop. Uh, or the freedom to eat. You know, you could, you could have a craving to shop. There could be tremendous greed to go shopping. And if you have unfettered access to shopping, you might not notice that you're in bondage by your greed. You don't see it as a limitation. You only see it as a limitation if you can't shop and you feel this tremendous compulsion, addiction to shop, to get something. So with addictions or compulsions or attachments, the freedom to act on them gives kind of relief, gives kind of a sense of ease or happiness or well-being in the short term. But we're not really free. We're, we're acting in our lives by compulsion. It's not, we're not really in, in charge. Our desires are in charge. Our fears are in charge. Our ill will is in charge. So, in contrast to the, uh, to the idea of freedom to do something, one way of understanding freedom in Buddhism is it's freedom from. Freedom from compulsion. Freedom from these inner forces that make us do things, think things, feel things, want things that maybe are not to our best interest even. So, if we turn the mirror around to try to understand how is it that I am in bondage, how is it that attachment and clinging operate here in my life, then there's an opportunity to understand it deeply enough and become free from these attachments. And there's two ways of becoming free from attachments. One is to somehow see them arise and not give in to them. The other way is to be released from them once and for all. It's simply something, see something, some deep penetration of life, deep purification of our life, and the very forces of attachment are uprooted. And that's the one of the part of the classic Buddhist language, to uproot the defilements, to uproot these attachments. And with uprooting, the person said to be released. With the uprooting of greed, hate, and delusion, the person said to experience nirvana, or touch nirvana, or be nirvanized. Um, to be released. It's often kind of not noticed so much that in Pali, the Buddhist language, uh, the word nirvana 
is uh, sometimes used as a maybe like an intransitive verb to be nirvanized. It doesn't make you can't doesn't doesn't you can't you know doesn't make sense much in English, right? You don't go tell your friends, you know, I was nirvanized. But if you think of nirvana as being synonym to release, then it makes sense, right? To be released. So the freedom from these compulsions within us. And then you say, you might ask, what good is that? And one of the benefits of that is then is no matter what happens in your life, no matter what difficulties and challenges happen that life brings to you, you'll know that forces of greed, hate, and delusion will not be your response to those things happening. So there can be tremendous tragedies that might befall some of you. There's no guarantee that um, your Buddhist practice is going to save you from sickness, old age, and death. I'm sorry to say. And uh, so sooner or later, these things will visit you. Sooner or later, visit your friends and neighbors, all kinds of people. All kinds of things will happen. Earthquakes, fires, war. I am amazed, actually, that um, I have lived so long and not had to live in a war. I'm kind of amazed by this. I think it's kind of rare for human beings to have that situation. And I've spent much of my life kind of kind of in the background, kind of assuming that sooner or later, against my wishes, I'll find myself in a situation of war. Because I kind of, I see, you know, that's what I saw. I see it everywhere. Part of my growing up, I, grew, I said I grew up partly in Los Angeles, but I'm originally from Norway. I was born in Norway and I grew up in, Swiss, in Switzerland and in Italy as well. And evidence of war was all around me. And evidence of war was in the stories that my family and their friends told growing up. I heard all these stories growing up. World War II was so present, still present. My um, parents-in-law will still send us new information they pick up from magazines or from books or different places. They're sending us a book now that um, is some new angle, new story, new recounting, new discovery, new research being done on the concentration camp that they lived in, in Germany in World War II. So it's still very present in my family, you know, something that happened 60 years ago. So it's just very, very, very alive for me, this idea of uh, war. You know, so I'm amazed. So we don't know what's going to happen. Anything can happen to us. The Buddhist question is, what is your response going to be to that? What's your response? Is your response going to be one that expresses the way you're held in bondage? Or is your response one that expresses the way that you're free? Does it come from freedom or from bondage? And if we run away in fear, then we're in bondage. If we get swept up in hate and anger, then we're in bondage. If we get swept up in desires, greed, wanting it to be a certain way, then we are in bondage.
And some of the ways in which we get swept up in greed, hate, and delusion cause tremendous suffering to ourselves. To be caught in the grip of fear or the grip of holding on to some attachments. And this is, you know, it can't be this way, it can't change. I have to hold on to the way I was in the past. Uh, causes suffering. When someone has discovered how to be free on the inside, how not to be in bondage, to be free of these compulsions, then, you have a, then the person has a certain assurance, a certain safety, that they know that no matter what happens to them in their life, that they can meet that without adding more suffering to it, adding a second arrow. I think all of, most of you know the second arrow story, but a few of you who don't, I'll tell it. A man came to the Buddha, I mean, uh, the Buddha was talking to some monks, and um, the Buddha said, if a man was struck by an arrow, would that be painful? And the um, answer was yes. And the Buddha said, if the person was struck by a second arrow, would that be even more painful? And the answer is yes. And the Buddha said, approximately, if um, the first arrow is what life does to you, there's no guarantee that life's not going to come along with an arrow. Sickness, age, old, and death. But the second arrow is what's, what you release, what you, you shoot at yourself. And this, when we've been freed from the inner compulsions, then we don't shoot any more arrows. We don't add arrows to the first. So that we can walk into a situation where we don't add, we, we know we can stay at peace. A graphic uh, story that, again, the Buddhists tell each other, tell themselves, is a story of the first Buddhist king in India, a few centuries after the Buddha, King Ashoka. And before he became a Buddhist, he was an awful king who went around conquering much of India. And after one very gruesome battle, there were, I don't know if it's a legend or what, but there are stories where there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people dead on the battlefield. And he walked across the battlefield. He was standing in the middle of it. And then walking across the battlefield came um, a Buddhist monk. And there was something about, something about the peace and the presence this Buddhist monk had that stopped King Ashoka, kind of caught his attention. And then he stopped, he renounced warfare from that, somehow, from that, that encounter. So, is it selfish to look for this kind of personal release? Is it selfish to, for Buddhism to emphasize, put the mirror here and try to understand the way that you live under compulsion. Try to look at the way that you live uh, in bondage, the forces of, of compulsions that drive you, and free yourself from them. Is that selfish? And the classic answer is no. What's selfish is to act out of bondage, to act out of compulsion, because that's, when we act out of compulsion and bondage, we, we add to the suffering of ourselves and the world. And it's a tremendous gift we give the world to be a kind of person that the world doesn't have to fear. That's a kind of a person who can bring peace, can act peacefully. But more than that, what Buddhists will say is that if you want to be a lifeguard, if you want to be you know, you know, you know, at, the, at the water, you better learn to swim first. 
Is it selfish for the person to learn to swim before she becomes a lifeguard? I don't think so. So, the way the, the, the focus on Buddhism, you know, the core of the practice of Buddhism, is directed inward to understand ourselves. My hope is that once that work's been done, once we've learned to swim, that then that translates to being lifeguards. That translates to meeting the world, responding to the world in ways that help the world. In effective ways and useful ways. So the story that Buddhism tells is a story of release. The story of bondage or attachment or and the story of freedom from that that's uh, that is a not a temporary release, but something that's a radical transformation in the heart. So that release becomes permanent in us, becomes who we are, becomes what we carry with us wherever we go. So, um, I think it's enough for today. But I had more to say. So I guess this series will continue (laughs) next week. But we have five minutes, and maybe it'd be nice after this if some of you have any comments or questions you'd like to make. A couple of, couple of minutes, we have five minutes, we can see if there's anything anybody wants. talked about um, one leaving the comfort zone or leaving a place that are comfortable. Can one actually be really comfortable within an organized spiritual practice? Can that be something that can actually get in the way you know, being part of an organized practice? Yes. And that is one of the things I'll talk about next week. To be, to, be, to, be, to be very simple about it, uh, uh, one of the very important forms of release that uh, Buddhist practice is supposed to free you from is, um, is release from religion. What do you think of that? But you have to come back next week to hear about that. <laughs> Uh, talking about uh, release from suffering and attachments, uh, it brought to mind the uh, the families of the Amish children who were murdered a yeah. few weeks ago. Boy. And obviously that community is in tremendous suffering, but it set off um, kind of waves of curiosity and confusion in the surrounding communities and in the media trying to interview Amish or people who knew the Amish, like, why aren't you angry or why, why, why aren't you manifesting more visible signs of your, your suffering? And the story of the second arrow uh, was really uh, 
right to the point on yeah. that. I was so inspired when I read about the Amish and what they did, and and um, I felt like it was like it was a bright light that kind of traveled through the country, and uh, I just hope that that light just kind of sets. I, don't know, I guess I can't change my metaphors, but you know, you set seeds, you know, all over the country. The, the idea that they would you know, offer this forgiveness for the man. Not only that, but they would go to his funeral, and not only that, but um, the, some of the family members of the victims who died uh, put together a, uh, a fund, raised money, uh, for uh, the uh, children of the, of the murderer. Isn't that something? So, um, so learn to swim. <laughs> Maybe you could do these kinds of things too when the time comes. So thank you.